The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 178. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Panel Z! I am Scottish. About things. Ooh. Be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're taking a look back at the Russell T. Davies era of modern Doctor Who, and as well as we're discussing the 10th Doctor's run of seasons as the Doctor. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Folks, if you can, we'd really do appreciate it when you can go and write a review at Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from, including we just heard from a listener who went to Stitcher and wrote a review, which is great. Uh, if you can write a review for us, that really gets the, the podcast in front of more folks and helps grow the audience. And uh, also, when you share the podcast with your friends, so your, your Doctor Who loving friends, uh, that really, and even those who might want to love Doctor Who they, and they don't know yet, then uh, that really helps us grow the podcast and better show for everyone. So, like I said, we're talking about the Russell T. Davies era. Uh, and just as a, sh- a little explanation, Russell T. Davies was the showrunner for Doctor Who from its revival in March of 2005 until he handed over the reins to Stephen Moffat uh, after the end of the... Uh, the 10th Doctor's time. In yes, in July of two thousand eight, yes. So he he really was the one who revived Doctor Who after it had been off the air for so many years. Uh, and so we want that's one of the things we want to talk about here is, you know, Russell T Davies' contribution to Doctor Who, all of Doctor Who over the the decades and decades. Uh, it's a unique contribution because it was not a foregone conclusion that Doctor Who would come back, right? Right, exactly. I mean that was. That, it, I mean, it had been rumored even from, you know, right after it was canceled, canceled or put on hiatus in, in 89. But other than the Eighth Doctor movie, which we've already talked about, there really was nothing. And actually, I, I, see, I recall right after the movie, and everybody was really not very happy with the movie, that um, it, pretty much the assumption was, well, that's it. It's dead. The series is never coming back. And right. then all of a sudden, there's rumors, you know, about 2003, 2004. It is coming back. There is something new being done. There were rumors periodically during the long dark that uh, Doctor Who would be back. And there were even various actors who had rumored to have been cast. And none of those ended up working out until Russell Davies. And some people had kind of gotten despairing of, oh, here comes another rumor. We've heard this before. Uh, So it's not like there was no interest in reviving the show, but it, 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 and the BBC even did a, uh, a an animated revival called Scream of the Shalka, uh, which I know we're going to review at some point, which 
had a different version of the Ninth Doctor, but then Russell T. Davies' version got on the air, and that was basically forgotten. One of the things that we should mention about Russell T. Davies, now you don't just revive a series like this unless you're a fan. So Russell T. Davies had been a fan. You also don't revive a series like this unless you're already a writer-producer guy, and he had written and produced other things. He also was one of the gang that contributed to Doctor Who spinoff media during the long dark. So Russell Davies and Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss and people like that, who became bigger names later on, all did things like write Doctor Who novels and write Doctor Who short stories that got published and write uh, scripts for Big Finish and things like that. So the, that was really kind of the spinoff media was the seedbed for the people who then made the move to making it for television again. Yeah, I mean that that's actually a really good point is all a lot of that stuff the big finish stuff the novels the other materials the people involved in those really are the 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 people who made uh knew who what it is. I mean the, the, the all those a lot of the writers more than just the showrunners a lot of the writers and other people involved. So that that's actually a really good exactly. point. It didn't just come out of nowhere. And and like you said Russell T Davies had a very strong career uh in in uh, British TV bef- before Doctor Who, and you know he had a uh, a, a lot of uh, big uh, shows that he had done before that he'd been involved with. So, uh, and and he's done things since, obviously. So uh, he has a he's he wasn't just a out of out of nowhere sort of guy. And so, just to to kind of close the loop, his time with the show, it, it, you know, with actively airing episodes, because of course um, there was a lot of pre production. But really, two thousand five to two thousand ten, that was his five-year era, which is, for most TV shows, that's a full run. <laughs> that's, that's a real yeah, full If run. you're lucky. I, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's one of the amazing things, and it really shows to Russell T. Davies, to set the platform where we're, we're 15 years. I mean, it's 15 years since Doctor Who released, and it is still considered a current series. Now, admittedly, it, you know, it's between seasons right now. Right. But it's still a currently being developed series. And, you know, so, so many TV series that were loved and, but they kind of came and went within, you know, five years, 10 years, if they're really lucky, you know, so this is, this is pretty incredible. So he, he really kind of set the stage. He built the foundation for new who, I mean, it could have been a one season and then gone again sort of thing, but he really kind of recast the foundation for Dr. Who the new who is, is different. And he's, it's connected. It's got a lot, you know, the, a lot of things are connected, but there are some new things as well. And and I wonder, like, what it is that that really uh, contributes to the longevity of New Who that he, the unique contributions he made. Anything you that come to mind for? for- well, I, I think the the first thing you know I think of, and we've mentioned it before, is that when you look at Rose, the first episode out of the gate, it's not an homage to classic Who. Mm-hmm. It sets the bare basic groundwork to say this is this is Doctor Who because you got the TARDIS, you got the Doctor, and that's really about it. Autons, but you know those, those were were pretty minor right. bad guys to begin with. But it sets the groundwork and then starts to build the backstory in slowly. You know, it, it's not like, and I, I think that's one of the, the critiques against the movie is it tried to throw so much of the backstory in right off the bat. And anybody who was kind of a casual might be interested in this show got blown out. Right. 
you know, and I think that's the first thing is, you know, new who started very gradually while going its own path on the same time. It's not like it, it said, well, we're going to start out and then we're going to jump back and pull all this stuff in. And then we're going to kind of move forward. You know, it, it's kind of doing both at the same time where it kind of builds its own audience. It builds its own mythos while pulling in the, you know, the, 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 uh, canon of classic who, right. As it goes along. Right, we didn't get the Dalek, even the classic Doctor Who villain, until the sixth episode of the first season. Uh, you know that that he, they waited. I think that's actually a key point: is they made it accessible to non fans. It made it they made a really good entry point for someone to come in, because which is what I was. I was not a, I was mm-hmm. not a classic Who fan when I first started watching, and uh, given that the first season was a bit uneven, uh, we'll talk about some of those uneven episodes <laughs> when we list our uh, best, the best and worst, but. You know, they, it was an entry point. There was an op, uh, a way for non-fans to come in and to relate, and that it was modern in style as well for 2005, and continues to be so in style with the, even the newer seasons. But Jimmy, what about you? What do you think of the, the unique contribution? One of the things we talked about when we reviewed the 1996 TV movie is how it feels like a hybrid between Classic Who and New Who. It has elements of both. And I think they and they've talked about how basically they learned lessons from that movie. One of the things that Father Corey was alluding to is the fact that the 96 movie requires you to immediately come up to speed on who the Daleks are, who the master is and who how regeneration works. And we've got Sylvester McCoy for the first, you know, basically third of the movie before suddenly we're. We have a regeneration, and then we're in a regeneration crisis for most of the rest of the movie, and it it just was all too much to build a new audience with. And so they start with a doctor who's apparently recently regenerated because he looks at himself in a mirror and is like examining his ears and stuff. So he's apparently recently regenerated, but they don't talk about that. So we don't have to spend time on that. If you're a fan of the classic series, you'll pick up on it, that this is a new body for him. But if otherwise, you don't have to worry about it. It just goes past you if you're a new fan, because they needed to build a new audience. The people who had been children in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s were now middle-aged or better. And so since this is a family show, you need to bring in those new people. And that means you can't be information heavy. One of the classic problems that sequel series have is how do we differentiate ourselves from our predecessor while also honoring the predecessor's legacy? This was one of the things that early on, for example, Next Generation, I don't think got right. Uh, They came back and said, okay, we're going to be our own series now. We can't have allusions to things from Star Trek, the original series. We're going to have Dr. McCoy in the first episode, and that's it. And then we can't do things we can and it was took a long time to get like the romulans pulled in and things like that and to have time travel stories again and they really were shot and bringing in other references doctor who i think in its revived series did much better because we did get a dalek in the first season halfway through you mm-hmm. don't want to you don't want to go immediately to the daleks because once you go to the daleks where do you have to go next you know you don't start at your top And then Russell T. Davies cleverly structured it to where we only meet a single Dalek. 
Right. And, and we don't get mass Daleks until later on. So we have this steadily rising season-long story arc. And that's something that was also new that was a Russell T. Davies contribution, these season-long story arcs with Bad Wolf being the right. first one. It's a way to thread the individual stories together without making it a modern serialized, you know, 10-hour movie or 13-hour movie. So you can have independent standalone episodes that have a running thread through them. And that kind of replaces the old serials. In the old serials, we'd have, you know, four or six parts on the same story, and they'd be in half-hour chunks typically, and you'd have to wait weeks to get resolution, and then we'd be off to something completely different. Russell T. Davies said, okay, we're going to do 45-minute episodes, but we're going to tell self-contained stories in those for the most part. Only occasionally are we going to have cliffhangers. But we will still have some running thread that ends up getting pulled at the end of the series. We also had a dramatic upgrade in the uh, production values. We had a dramatic upgrade in the pace and the timing of the episodes. We had mm -hmm. more overt humor. Uh, we had more overt action. And in general, it, just a higher tempo of development. If you... This right. is one of the things that can be off-putting for fans of New Who, who then try to get into Classic Who. It can seem <laughs> yeah. like endless running around corridors without the plot moving forward yes. at, when it's at its worst. And, and so this was a big step up in those ways. Also, something that really wasn't a Russell T. Davies innovation, but because people kind of forgot about the 96 movie, it got perceived that way. We have romance for the first mm -hmm. time uh, right. with The Doctor involved. Uh, we have clear romantic tension between him and Rose, and then it gets even stronger in the David Tennant era, and then we have Martha for the rebound, and finally Donna for friendship, and so this this is a was never a question in Classic Who, other than like when the Doctor accidentally gets engaged to Kamika in the Aztecs episode. <laughs> Father Corey? One thing I do think kind of contributed to wasn't Russell T. Davies' intention, but I think it actually worked out the best, was the fact that Christopher Eccleston was a one-season doctor. And then you had David Tennant. And we'll talk much more about this kind of going forward, because that's the whole purpose of this, this, uh, this uh, episode. But I think that actually worked out best where instead of having you know, Christopher Eccleston coming on and you know, staying on for several seasons, you had that change right away into a very popular character, right? You know, you know, for popular yeah. actor, a popular doctor, and Cr I think that's what really cemented the the long term viability of the series. Yeah, Christopher Eccleston was popular with some people, but David Tennant was clearly much more popular, and right. Matt Matt Smith was also popular. And even though you can say, well, okay, when the ratings started to slip on, under Capaldi, it was, you know, because the show had been on the air so long and stuff. Okay, maybe. But I think the likability of the Doctor is a big oh, factor so. in the popularity of a given era. If I find myself thinking about, oh, I'm going to watch some new Who, what era do I want to watch? Right. It's going to be, I'm immediately attracted to watching Matt Smith or David Tennant because they are the most likable of the new Who doctors. I mean, right. Christopher Eccleston, eh. Peter Capaldi, for me, eh. Jodie Whittaker, boring. 
as a doctor. <laughs> the the interesting, bouncy, exciting, friendly ones are Tennant and uh, and Matt Smith. And I'm immediately it's like, the, oh, I'm up for watching that in a way I'm not necessarily up for watching the others. I can appreciate the other doctors. I can appreciate Jodie Whittaker. I can appreciate Peter Capaldi. I can appreciate Christopher Eccleston. And they have good episodes in their individual runs. But the likability of the doctor for me is a big factor. Yeah. You know, a related element, too, is, is the introduction of the concept of regeneration really at the beginning, at the end of that first season, which is such a key element in, in the Doctor mm-hmm. Who mythos. So getting that out there, if we had gone three or four seasons with Christopher Eccleston and then had a regeneration, I think that might have put some fans off. Like, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? I, I, perhaps. I, I don't know. I think fans were really so because fans, even new fans, would know fans of the classic series, like the kids who were watching it with their parents. The parents would explain regeneration to right. them and and kind of prep them for typically we have, oh, you know, about three years for a doctor. Yeah. And it was a big surprise. And right. I, I know a lot of fans, because I was watching at the time, a lot of fans were like, wait, what? We have never had a one season doctor before. We get right. 13 episodes of this guy, and that's it? Mm-hmm. You know, his character arc is just beginning, uh, and this was not planned. Yeah. So I think, actually, even though I think we tr- definitely traded up, yeah. this was something that people had concerns about, it because this was unprecedented. It's like, what happened here that we only get a one-season doctor? And the BBC kind of sort of lied about it and implied that was yeah. the plan, but it wasn't. Clearly, no. yeah. Chris Reckleston later said he, he he didn't leave under good circumstances. But again, I think that actually is was a, as you say is a, was a positive because it kind of even the even the the longtime fans were sort of surprised by it, and it turned out well. So in in that sense, it, yeah. it's and I, positive. I, I do I do think if it had turned out badly, if the, if if let's just say they had Peter Capaldi as mm-hmm. the next Doctor, I don't think we'd be talking about New Who today, right? Think, you know. And we're, again, we're going to talk more about David Tennant and all that, but I think he really cemented the new who. Right. Yeah. What, one other thing I want to mention uh, that, you, that you mentioned, Father Quarters, but like with the, the Daleks being that first season. And if you look at it, they, they were very deliberate in how they reintroduced major elements from Classic Who. First mm-hmm. season was the Daleks. Second season was the Cybermen. Third season was the Master. I mean, these are... Three of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, elements, the the, the uh, antagonist for the Doctor from Classic Who, and they were very deliberate in not like it. It could have been very tempting to just roll them all out in the first season, but they were very deliberate in how they did it. They well, they yeah. also were um, measured in how they filled in the backstory. Initially, right. we didn't know all about the Time War. And mm-hmm. stuff, and we got, and we didn't know the doctor had killed everybody, and we got little drips and drabs of that as it went along. And then at the end of the David Tennant specials, which you could think of as the fifth season, that's when we actually get to see Gallifrey for the first time. So the Time mm-hmm. Lords don't come back in until then, right? With with Timothy Dalton as the the, the Lord President, <laughs> yeah, which is awesome. Rassilon, yes. Rassilon, yes, that was good. All right, so let's talk about the two doctors and three companions of the. Uh, Russell T. Davies era. We, we've kind of been talking about Chris Freckleson and David Tennant, but th- th- there is that point you made, uh, I think it was you, Father Corey, who made the point that David Tennant really cemented the, 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 Russell, the, the Doctor Who was back. Like He really yeah. you know, 
cemented what we expect of a modern Doctor Who doctor uh, in those expectations, for good or for ill. In other words, I think you're often compared against the David Tennant doctor as opposed to the Christopher Eccleston doctor. Well, and I, I remember when David Tennant was the doctor, and of course, everybody compared him to uh, Patrick Troughton, you know, kind of the, the clown clown doctor, you know, with, mm-hmm. with kind of the, the creative mind, but very, very, you know, clownish and, and attitude and everything. And, you know, it, it was interesting you know, in preparing for this. I went back, looked at the ranking the doctors episode we did, went back, looked at my list. You know, Christopher Eccleston, I put on the low end and David Tennant, I put on the higher end. And it really, I mean, and that, I think that really was the dramatic difference there. I would like to have seen more Christopher Eccleston because maybe he would have, his character dealt like, like Peter Capaldi did, you know, Peter right. Capaldi came out very harsh, very aggressive with the tack eyebrows and he mellowed and <laughs> right. he actually became, I, 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 I personally enjoy like the, the Nardal episodes and things yeah. like that with, with Peter Capaldi. Because by that time, he'd mellowed quite a bit. And I think that pro- might have happened with Christopher Eccleston's Doctor, that they were able to move that development instead into David Tennant's era. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think that um, that was the natural progression for his Doctor, because he's just come out of the Time War, he's hurting, he's angry, and over time, he'll learn to deal with that. Exactly. In terms of com- comparing the new Doctors to the classic Doctors, I've seen different people compare Christopher Eccleston's Doctor to John Pertwee's and also um, Tom Baker in aspects. Now, clearly, he's a very different person than either one of those guys. But like Pertwee, he and and to some extent like Baker, he could be very brusque and and kind of angry and condescending. Um, And then I've seen... David Tennant compared not just to the second doctor with the clownishness, but also to um, Peter Davison's doctor, the young, handsome doctor who's, you know, I've seen some people for female viewers call him your good boyfriend. Right. And and he 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 does come across to me as a, he's a lot like a modern Peter Davison who because he, he's got the angry bit. He can get snappish. But he's also got the boyishness. And then the one that I think of as the most Patrick Troughton-like is not in this era. It's Matt Smith. He's, he's the zany one. Right. You know, we should mention the Christopher Eccleston's, Eccleston's departure. We, we kind of briefly alluded to it. But he left under, under a cloud. I mean, as, as was later mm-hmm. come out, and he revealed very recently, in fact, and others have talked about, he had... Big differences with Russell T. Davies and other showrunners, perhaps the BBC's uh, uh, things have been said like, oh, he didn't like how certain members of the cast and crew were treated, perhaps. Um, others said it was had to do with the tone of the show, uh, that he wanted it to be more for aimed at kids, uh, lighter, a little more comedy, uh, and he felt like it was going too dark. Uh, so, so whatever it was, he ended up leaving. And, it, and if that's the case, it's kind of interesting because Matt, uh, David Tennant's era was actually, in many cases, a lot lighter. Uh, it re- that first season, there were moments where it felt kind of heavy, and the Doctor felt kind of dark. And they did go lighter with David Tennant, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I, they did. Um, I, from what I've seen, from what Eccleston has said, he, basically there were like three high-up people and he hasn't, at least in what I've seen, he hasn't specifically named who they were. 
right. but that he had significant differences with and ended up leaving. And I'm not entirely clear to what extent was it you're fired or you can't fire me, I quit. Right, right. right. That's still, yeah, a bit unknown at this point. And, and I, I wonder if it's people who are still involved in one way or another with the show uh, because he's very clear he does not want to come back for anything. I mean, that's why we had the War Doctor yeah. in the 50th right. anniversary special. He was right. not willing to come back. So, it, you know, and, and maybe Russell Steve Davies was one of them. Maybe he's not. Maybe it was one of the other people involved. Maybe it's the BBC in general. I mean, I don't know if he's done it work with the BBC since. I haven't followed his career, so I don't it, know. But. Actually, uh, my understanding is it hurt his career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that the people are involved, but I think that's one of the reasons he's reticent. Because if you have a star who too, who does too much trash talking of execs, it's going to make future execs who are considering hiring him reconsider whether yeah, they right. want to hire him because he could trash talk you one day. Right. You know, temperamental artists can be like that. <laughs> also, I think I've heard him allude to personal problems he was having at the time, you know, like yeah. some psychiatric difficulties. And other people on the on in the cast where Billy Piper was going through a divorce at the time. And so uh, there was, you know, some off screen angst that was affecting it. And apparently it's just a, a dark period in his life that he doesn't want to revisit. So um, we'll talk about the 10th Doctor uh, at length, actually, a, a little bit later. But uh, I want to talk about the three companions that we had in this era. We, so we have, as mentioned, Billy Piper. So Rose. Martha Jones and Donna, uh, three, three uh, one-off comedians. Mickey kind of tagged along uh, at times, but I wouldn't necessarily call him a regular. He was there for a few episodes as a companion, uh, but really there was three we, we, major this was companions. A, yeah, this was a solo companion era, basically. Uh, the Doctor and a female companion, and uh, and it, they were very. They, each one was somewhat different. You know, you Rose who sort of became not sort of she definitely became the romantic interest martha jones the wannabe romantic romantic interest and then donna the the totally not romantically interested and (laughs) and it's a very very interesting that they had these they they clearly wanted to have these different kinds of companions with a doctor and as we've gone through this era episode by episode I've really kind of come around to thinking. I think Donna is one of my favorite companions. It may oh, yeah. change as oh, we as we get into the Moffat era, and I'm like, oh, I really like Amy and Rory and Clara. But but right now, I think no. Donna is the strongest of these three companions. I, I I think Donna is still the best companion of New Who. I will mm-hmm. say that flat out. As much as I've enjoyed, you know, yeah, Rory and Amy and Nardal and and Graham, uh, Graham today, you know. I still think Donna is the best, if nothing else, because she gave it back to the doctor as good as he would give it. <laughs> She's definitely the best companion of the uh, Russell T. Davies era. I'd have to think about whether I, I'm not close to saying she's the best of New Who, but she's definitely the best of the Russell T. Davies era. I just want to think about it a little more if it's broader than that. I thought they I actually like the arc they have between these three companions. Because it does kind of, it, it's Hegelian. You have this uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You have uh, the thesis of the romantic companion, the antithesis of the companion who wants to be romantic but isn't, and then you have the synthesis of friendship. And that's a nice, that's a well-planned arc. Now, I don't think they handled it perfectly in all places. 
Sometimes Martha's pining is a little too much, but at least she finally stands up for herself and leaves on her own right. terms. Of, I'm out of here. This isn't good for me. Been nice, but see you later. I like all three of the companions. I I probably like, actually, even though she was very popular at the time, I probably like Rose the least as a person. Hmm. Rose comes across as flirty, whiny, and not as serious a human being as Martha or Donna. Hmm. I can relate to Martha and I can relate to Donna in a way that I can't relate to Rose because she's a vapid post-teenager. <laughs> right. Hmm. Also, also, one change we should mention, this was another Russell T. Davies in, uh, contribution to the show. These people have families. That right, are also yeah. important to the show. The closest we got to that in in Classic Who was Tegan's Auntie Vanessa, or right. occasional mentions to relatives we never saw. But here we have fully rounded out families with their own personality. We meet Rose's family, we meet Martha's family, who are largely forgettable, and we meet Donna's family. Yes. And that's another big contribution to the show that made it more complex and more realistic. And, you know, I, I want to say, you know, talking about Rose, you know, I, I agree with your, your, especially at the very beginning, she's very much that stereotypical bubble, bubbly millennial, quote unquote, you know, my, you know, personality, but I think she's probably got one of the best developments yeah. as a companion because eventually she becomes much more serious, much more, um, structure, you know, her, her life, you know, she becomes a fighter basically. Right. Yeah, and she's got the longest arc. She's there for two seasons instead of just one because yeah. they wanted her as to provide then, continuity. But when well, Christopher then, Eccleston left, yeah. and yeah. then comes in later as well. Yeah. Although I'd say Mickey has the lo the furthest development of anyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one one thing that I like about these companions is, and this is another change in how the show is approached. It's character driven now. Yeah. In a way that it wasn't before. I mean, yeah, they did want the companions to have personalities, and some of the companions were successful, but they didn't have the arcs of character development that Rose and Martha and Donna each get. This is now, uh, I mean, there it, before you could have companions written out of the show at a moment's notice, and there wasn't like an arc leading to how they join the Doctor and how they progress with the Doctor and then how they leave the Doctor. And now we have that happening for all three of the characters. They are not the same person exactly when they meet the doctor. They change over their time. And then there's thought put into how they leave and it's built up. So, you know, we have the Rose supernova thing and we have Martha standing up for herself and we have Donna's mind catch on fire and. All of these are dramatic moments that the show builds to. So now the character development is driving the plot in a way that it did not in Classic Who, when it was much more high concept rather than high character. I, you know, I, I would argue, though, that Classic Who was moving that way. Yes. Look at Ace's character. I was going to cite Ace, yes. You know, yeah. because, you know, and, and of course we know now the, the Carmel Master Plan that was supposed to be kind of what it was going to be. Ace was going to develop throughout the course of these as the doctor himself developed in his mystery. Right. You know, Ace, so, was, Ace was going to go off to the Time Lord Academy and become a time lady. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that that is something that they actually started considering 
at the last couple of seasons of Classic Who that then got picked up with New Who. And and New Who borrowed from that. Rose is basically a 21st century version of Ace. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. That's true. So let's move on to talking about this. uh, uh, The the fun thing that is, I don't know if it's it's meaningless, but I have fun doing it. Uh, I want to rank our top five episodes from the Russell T. Davies era and then our worst five. And I'm not sure how we're going to do this. If you just want to name them, or if we want to go one by one, our our top, and then and then all together our second. Do you want to just name them? Let's do it person by person. Okay. Uh, I will defer to to you both first, and and uh, Father Corey, why don't you go first? Yeah. So I had to put one Christopher Eccleston episode in. I just you know I had to make sure there was one there, and so I picked the 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 two final two parter, Bad Wolf, Parting of the Ways. Okay. You know. You know, because I, I really feel feel that was, of course, the, the final episodes was the strongest one of his run. Um, I'm purposely actually leaving off two particular best episodes because I know they're going to come up on your guys' list as well. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so I'll mention them as honorable mentions. And of course, that's Blink and Midnight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are honorable mentions. School Reunion. I, I love the, you know, of course, that was the first real heavy, we're bringing black classic who with, in, the, in Sarah Jane Smith. Yep. Rise of the Cybermen, Age of Steel, you know, the introduction of the Cybermen in the alternate universe. Then, then the three-parter, Utopia, Sound of Drums, Last of the Time Lords, reintroducing the Master. And then one episode, I don't remember what our kind of architect was, I liked it was Turn Left, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it was the alternate history yeah. for Donna. I, you know, that was, again, you know, one of those that I, I really actually kind of enjoyed, and I, cause, mainly because I liked the idea of it and kind of how it was played out. Yeah, yeah. I should mention that we would we we considered uh, two parters and the and the the th- the, the three parter as one story for the purposes of this. Dom yeah. Dom made us do that. Yes, I yeah. did. <laughs> and I also forgot to mention that with with that three parter, it it was the first episode, especially with with Derek Jacoby as the the yes. master yes. for that brief time. That was that was so great. But I like the whole three parter. I liked your choice of turn left. It didn't make my list, but I did. I do like your choice of that. That would have been uh, in my top ten, certainly. Uh, Jimmy, what's your top five? So I had an easy time coming up with three of the five, and then I had a much harder time. For me, there are three stories that really stand out in the Russell T. Davies as awesome: Blink, the introduction of the Weeping Angels; Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead the Vashti Narada and the introduction of her song, and Midnight, the episode set on the space bus with the creature we never see. Those three are all stories are all awesome. After that, it gets a lot harder. There's, I think, a significant gap for me, and it's harder to pick the final two slots in the top five. And by the way, these are not in any order. Those are just my top three. Mm-hmm. The... Things I have considered for the final two slots include Time Crash, the five-minute fourth Doctor, <laughs> oh, it's tenth Doctor, just because it's so much fun. Jimmy's breaking um, the rules again. Okay, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly the Empty Child slash the Doctor Dances, which was mm-hmm. uh, from the Christopher Eccleston era. It's the only thing from that era that I would put on this list. Possibly Human Nature slash Family of Blood. And possibly school reunion. Okay. But it's much harder for me to fill those latter slots. And one thing I notice about the ones I picked, they are dominated by Stephen Moffat. 
He wrote yeah. Blink. He wrote Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. He wrote Time Crash, and he wrote Empty Child and Doctor Dances. So he didn't write School Reunion. He didn't write Human Nature, Family of Blood, and he did not write Midnight, which is the only one written by Russell T. Davies himself on my list. I was just—I was going to say, you know, by Dom's rules, since you picked uh, Time Crash, you also have to pick Voyage of the Damned. <laughs> no, it's, they're two different stories. Just kidding. Just kidding. So. Uh, I had a similar circumstance, which is I picked my top five, and then I looked at who wrote them, and I realized that four of my top five are all written by Stephen Moffat, which is kind of an interesting uh, uh, indicator of where my interests lie in what I think is the best Doctor Who, or at least New Who. Uh, so I I would rank them as number one, Blink. Number two, Silence in the Library, Force of the Dead. Number three is Midnight, which is the, Rus the that Russell T. Davies. The number four was Empty Child, Dr. Dances, which is the one from the Christopher Eccleston era. And The Girl in the Fireplace. I mm. I always liked that. When I first watched it, it, I was very affected by the story. And I think this, as a when you watch it for the first time, not having watched it before, it ha I think it's much more effective than rewatching it. I think the same way with Blink uh, as well. That when you don't know the ending, it's much more effective, or at least it was for me when I watched it. So I, I, I think Blink holds up really well. I use yeah. Blink and Midnight as my introductions for people right. to the series, and every time I watch them with somebody, I love it. Right, right. Uh, and I think Girl in the Fireplace is is best on first watch, not not as good on on rewatches, but certainly uh, it's in my top five. But I, I thought we'll it was very it. interesting, like like you said, Jimmy, like how much how much of that is dominated by Stephen Moffat. Uh, who is, you know, really holds so much of, of everything post-1989 Doctor Who is dominated yeah. by Stephen Moffat. They made a really good choice by making him the next showrunner. And yep. if, if Chris Chibnall had written the best episodes of the Stephen Moffat era, <laughs> it would have been a good decision to make him showrunner after Stephen Moffat. <laughs> Instead, he wrote some of the worst. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the, the tough part was choosing five because every one that you guys mentioned that I didn't are shows that I would also add like in the top 10, top 15 list. Yeah. You know, like I said, you know, Blink and Midnight were two shows I purposely did not put on this list because I knew they would be on your guys' list. Yeah. Right. You well, know, so. and the interesting thing is, is as we move to the our worst five, I had a surprisingly difficult time filling it with five episodes. Now, the, the, mm -hmm. it was very easy at first, <laughs> the first couple. <laughs> but but as I get to the end of it, I'm like, these are not terrible. Uh, there are aspects of these I enjoyed, but uh, but I'll, I'll let you guys go again, Jimmy. I'll, I'll let you go first this time. What what list your bottom five? So <clears throat> for my bottom bottom five, and these are not in any order. And this was a tough thing to do in part because I don't watch the ones I don't enjoy, <laughs> so I'm not as familiar. And I'm like, what was what were all the details of that one? But Aliens of London slash World War Three with the farty aliens yes. that just did not enjoy that. Uh, Fear Her, the little girl with make, who makes scribbles that attack people. The reintroduction of the Cybermen. I did not like the alternate reality earbud Cybermen. The Shakespeare Code. I, didn't, I typically don't like, and also one that could have been on here is the Unquiet Dead. Um, mm -hmm. I don't like the new Who historicals. And in particular, the Shakespeare Code, which promises to have us, I mean, Shakespeare is this <clears throat> master of words, which is why he's important to the plot. 
and only he can come up with the words for the lost play Love's Labor's One, which is a real lost play, and he needs to come up with these genius words that are going to send the aliens back to their dimension as the climax of the plot. And then all it is is reading coordinates. (laughs) You know, it's just badly written. I also don't like things like The Unquiet Dead, which is their Charles Dickens episode, and The Shakespeare Code, which, of course, is their Shakespeare episode, because we have such historic figure worship in these. Also, the Agatha Christie episode is in that same vein. It's like, oh, Agatha Christie is the greatest ever. So those are all ones I could put on this list. The one that I'm most reluctant to put on this list is Love and Monsters. Because Love and Monsters <laughs> is actually, in my opinion, a good episode until the end. And at the right. end, it completely falls off a cliff. But yeah. most of the episode is actually quite enjoyable. So that's the one that is 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 I'm most hesitant to put on my worst list, even though it's widely regarded as one of the worst episodes ever because of the ending. Father Corey? So I'm not hesitant to put Love and Monsters, because if, <laughs> if, if you want to hear my opinion on that, go back and listen to it. Basically, it was two <laughs> against one. I did not like that episode at all. That's one of my worst. And again, my, my lists are not in any order either. Fear Her, I also agree with that one. Then I went, I just went the Slithine, Aliens, London, World War Three as one, and then Boomtown also, or the return. You know, apparently we didn't get enough of them in two-parter. We had to have a third episode with one of them. Um, and then Father's Day was another just, one that I put on my list. That was a hard one for me. Father's Day did not make my list, but it could, it almost did. But there were aspects of that I really liked. So um, it, 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 it that was a tough one. So for mine... No surprise, anyone who's listened to this podcast know that <laughs> Aliens of London, World War Three, and Boomtown were my top two, period. <laughs> That's not a surprise. Yeah. Uh, here's a surprise one. Dalek. The, the, the reintroduction of the Daleks. Not that I had a problem with the Dalek itself. I really had a problem with the other characters. I found them annoying. I found the, the American billionaire annoying. I found the premise of the American billionaire and the secret installation i just find the whole thing that bit annoying so really i i didn't really enjoy that as much as i should have because we had the daleks again um fear her was number four for me because of the same reasons i just uh, it was a very strange episode and it just didn't work for me uh and love and monsters which for the same reasons jimmy said uh it i had a hard time putting it on there because i liked so much of it and it it went off the rails at the end and uh it was not likable um even you know it wasn't so much that as we talked about in the episode when we talk when we discuss it at length it wasn't so much that it wasn't the doctor in it much at all because i uh, the parts of that were good it's just the ending was so bizarre and bad <laughs> so yeah so that's the so that's the top five bottom five and frankly i'd love to hear from you the listener what your top five bottom five are so you know if to either send us an email we'll give the contact information at the end or go to the 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 Facebook page or the website and and let us know because I'd love to hear from you what you think of our list and what your lists are. So let's uh, let's kind of move on to talking about the tenth Doctor uh, in the time we have left and David Tennant's era as the Doctor as he ends it with this. Uh, you know, we've already talked about the regeneration the two parter and and you can go back and listen to that. But let's talk about the this the controversy over whether David Tennant really wanted to go. Um, and we, 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 we talked a little bit before, but just kind of bring it up again. 
you know, there is some talk that Tenet was involuntarily replaced. It, what mm. do you, do you buy that? Or um, do you think, and do you think it was a wrong move to replace him with the switch over to a new showrunner? Should we have kind of, when we have a new showrunner, do we have to have a new doctor? What do you think? No. Well, during Classic Who, that was not the case. You would, you know, I think, I'm trying to remember, but I think during uh, Tom Baker's run, there yeah, was they changed three or several four times. showrunners. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a number of them. Mm-hmm. Now, I think for New Who, it's actually worked fairly well. Um, you know, and it's, there were rumors at the time that David Tennant was kind of getting worn out with the, the character and everything. And to be honest with you, looking back through New Who, I think they made the change over at the right time. Because where would they have taken him from where he was at? He was already Time Lord victorious and everything and all right. this stuff. And then, you know, would they have boosted the ego more? Would they have popped that bubble? You know, and that, that might not have been a good thing to then show David Tennant kind of sliding down from the Time Lord victorious bubble. So, I, I mean, whether or not he wanted to go, and like, like I said, at, at the time, it, it, the rumor was that he was ready to go, too. He was, he was ready to move on with his career. Which he has done quite successfully, by the way. He's yes. been one of the few Doctor Who lead leads that really had a very successful career after Doctor Who. So, what do you think, Jimmy? I tend not to pay a, t- a lot of attention to rumors like this because the false to true ratio is so high. Unless Tennant or Davies said something to indicate this, I would I would say no. What they said in the interviews is most likely true because. Tenet did express an interest in moving on, and that is a real concern for actors. You don't want to be typecast, and you do have to leave at a certain point if you don't if you want a career after a popular show. So I I don't have any reason to think that he was um, let go. I think it's up to the showrunner. Do they need a new doctor at a given moment? And if a showrunner wants to keep on a doctor, I think that's fine. If a showrunner thinks, no, it's time for a new one, I think that's the showrunner's call. I also think that if David Tennant had not wanted to go, they wouldn't have given him the exit line they did, which is, I don't want to go. Right. Right. That would be too on the nose if you had an actor who you're going to have stories told about that by the actor for years afterwards. <laughs> if that's true, that's that. That's right. That's right. I I could see that. And we 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 briefly alluded to that the influence that David Tennant has on new who doctors. What do you think of that? Like, it just has did. Did he set more of the tone of who the Doctor is in a modern sense than, I mean, certainly more than Eccleston. I think his influence oh, yeah. is enduring, right? Well, just because of time, just because of, of the amount of time that he spent in the role and because he was so popular. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and, and to be fair, you know, of course, Matt Smith was compared to him and so was Capaldi and now Jodie Whittaker, but they're still different characters there's still different play ways of playing the doctor even if they might pull off of it off yeah. of you know what david Tennant did but again we talked about david Tennant. he pulled off of the second and fifth doctor in many ways so yeah every doctor is a is a reaction to the previous doctor and is inevitably compared to certain seminal doctors in the classic era the first seminal doc well i mean really the one that everyone was after 
Hartnell was comparing them to after the Hartnell and Troughton. Everyone was comparing themselves to Troughton. How does my character compare to Troughton? Because Troughton was the one that saved the show. And then when Tom Baker went on for so long and was so popular, he became another kind of point of reference doctor. How does my character compare to Tom Baker? In the new era, it's Tennant that is the one that um that uh every that has like the point of reference doctor. So everyone compares themselves to whoever came just before them and to David Tennant. Right. I mean he was the doctor for more episodes than anyone else. Of forty I think it's like forty six or something like that episodes. You know, nobody has has done as many as he has in the modern era, clear to be clarif- clarified there. Uh so he he had more time to sort of set the understanding of who the doctor is and and in the story, the the background, the arc, the 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 his relationship to the other Time Lords of, in in the, at this time and Time Lord Victorious and how he relates to companions really gets set in many ways by Tennant. And then in comparison, how you know how does Matt Smith relate to them? How does Capaldi relate to them? Those are sort of set in con- comparison or or contrast to how Tennant did it. Well, there's also kind of a truism among fans where you know your first Doctor is your favorite. For many people. Right. And I think there's a lot of fans who came in with New Who where David Tennant was the first Doctor. They didn't see the Eccleston episodes until maybe later. You know, like they didn't come in during that first season. And of course, going back then to Classic Who and everything. And so I think there's a lot of people from a fan standpoint, they see him as, you know, the modern Doctor because he was their first Doctor. Right. Let's talk about the... The, influ- the influence of the 10th Doctor on the 11th, 12th, and 13th, and perhaps into the future, maybe whoever succeeds Jodie uh, Whittaker in the role, uh, what do you think is the, the most enduring influence on each of those, like on Matt Smith? Uh, we talked about Matt Smith had some of the zany madcap runabout to him, right? Matt, Matt Smith is, is also a, a Doctor from the Your Good Boyfriend model, but he's zanier. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's like he's like David Tennant plus Daffy Duck. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, how about with uh, with Capaldi though? How does is there an influence there in the? He's with, he's the anti David Tennant. Yeah. He's they're deliberately summit, trying to go to the other extreme from your good boyfriend. I mean, there's some. Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, there's very much that response to the the, the your good boyfriend. You know, being against the boyfriend. But the darker side of David Tennant that we saw, you know, later on, like we talked about, you know, Waters mm. of Mars and, and things like that, where you see on more the darker side of this character. Right. And I think Capaldi tried to pull more of that aspect. That's true. True. And then with Jody, I think we're going back to uh, Doctor as part of the fam, the companions, the friends. Let's, let's have mm-hmm. fun traveling together. That aspect of, of, uh, of the 10th Doctor. That's actually more Matt Smith having a fam on the TARDIS. Yeah, um, Amy and Rory. Yep. Yeah, and River. Yes. I I think that to the extent Jodie Whittaker is modeling her performance after Tennant, it's mostly in terms of just trying to be generally likable. And she has little elements of zaniness and anger that poke out, but I think she's just going for likability. And I... This is not a slight on the actress, but I just don't think she's written in a way that's half as compelling as David Tennant. Mm-hmm. And I think, though, that Jodie Whittaker, 
because she's the first female doctor, is now a new point of reference doctor for the future, okay. uh, for future female actresses who play the doctor. They're going to be comparing themselves to Jodie Whittaker the same way male actors have been comparing themselves to David Tennant and Patrick Troughton. Well, that brings up the uh, the related point, which is, is you know, when Jodie Whittaker's time ends in a couple seasons, say, maybe she does three or four seasons, uh, what will people still you know, look to uh, David Tennant as a reference doctor. This is the sort of the 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 archetype of the doctor in the modern era, or will I, that have I shifted? Think, I think so. I mean, I, I again, we're, we're we've been talking about comparing all the way back to Patrick Troughton in the sixties, so sixties and early seventies. So, I mean, we're we're still talking about Doctor Who going all the way back. Um, does now, of course, again, you know, we're talking too. That, that's the funny part to reflect on. But we're talking about thing, you know, episodes that aired as long as fourteen years ago, right? You know, and as time goes on, they're going to be as distant as you know some of the the sixties and the seventies episodes are. And so those doctors are they're not going to be remembered as well as more recent ones, right? Uh, I think that. Probably. Do you have any further comments on uh, either the Tenth Doctor or Russell D. Davies? Anything left you want to? That's been unsaid. I think it's been a good conversation that we've had yeah. on the the Tenth Doctor and on Russell T. Davies. Uh, I think uh, that that should wrap it up for us. So let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Mark R, Bo H, Rochelle K, and Familia Napuri. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. That's it from us. So what do you think of the Russell T. Davies era and the Tenth Doctor's place in all of modern and classic Who? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or you can send an email to doctorwho at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the second Doctor story, The Macra Terror. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, allons-y! Right. This is going to be fun.